This episode is brought to you by Dentons Canada. From startups to industry icons, Dentons acts for a wide variety of companies in both the public and private realms. As the world's largest law firm, Dentons can provide its global reach to your business. Visit Dentons.com for more details. Welcome to The Frontier, a podcast series brought to you by Cap Intel, dedicated to bringing you the latest insights, innovations, and investment philosophies from the professionals who invest your money. This week, in part one of our derivative special, we have Croft Financial Group's Jason Ayers. Bill Ackman, everybody who follows the markets has followed Ackman's uh, short stake in Herbalife. Getting creamed, right? Short squeezed. If you short sell a company, the more the shares go higher, the more you as a short seller are losing. So you have to buy to cover and subsequently you're running a loss. So what Ackman did not too long ago was converted his short position in the company to put options. Any financial security, if misused, has the capacity for ruin. There's no question about it. Jason is a derivative market specialist by designation, director of business development and investment review committee member. Jason also sits on the RNN Croft Financial Group Board of Directors. In his role as Director of Business Development, Jason is responsible for the overall management of all strategic and operational marketing and partner-client relationship activities. As a member of the Investment Review Committee, Jason contributes as a market technician and derivative strategist, most notably in the security and option strategy selection for the actively managed alternative strategies pool. In addition, Jason has been one of the lead instructors for the TMX Montreal Exchange for the last nine years. Jason continues to travel across Canada, actively advocating the use of options as an important tool in effective portfolio management. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Most people think of derivatives from high school math. What are derivatives in the context of finance? Yeah, so it's it's interesting you should uh, tie it to high school math because that's actually one subject that I never, ever excelled in. Um, it's true that derivatives are priced based on a relatively complex equation. There's no question about it. But um, derivatives essentially are contracts. And there are buyers and sellers of these contracts that are you know taking action based on their uh, objectives. And those contracts are priced based on what we would call an underlying security. And so as the underlying security fluctuates in value, um, so too does the derivative of that security. And so you have a number of different types of derivatives. And I think that's important to understand that um, when people mention the term derivative, it's actually, um, it, it, it actually encompasses a wide number of financial products. And so it really is important for the investor to sort of understand what the different types of uh, derivative products are and how they might effectively use them based on what they're trying to accomplish as uh, as an investor. Further to that, based on my understanding of derivatives, there are four primary types, options, swaps, futures, and forward contracts. Can you walk us through an example of each? Sure. So uh, I'll start with swaps, which tend to be the um, the more complex and more customized type of derivative. You know, businesses are typically trying to manage risk and 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 
and sort of um, isolate expenses for themselves. And so what swaps allow different businesses to do is essentially um, exchange the variable performance of a certain fixed uh, market. So for example, if my business is very dependent upon interest rates um, and we recognize that interest rates can fluctuate, then what I might wanna do as that business is I might wanna fix my interest rate uh, and then subsequently be able to forecast, uh, you know, debt servicing expenses. Uh, if I'm a company that ultimately is uh, sensitive to currency fluctuations, then I might want to do a currency swap um, with another entity so that I can fix my, my currency exchange rate. So one company wants to um, uh, establish a fixed rate. Another company is comfortable with a fluctuating rate and subsequently they swap the relative performance of their positions. Um, the idea essentially is such that um, if, if, I'm a, um, if I'm a Canadian company, for example, and I'm doing business in Europe and maybe I'm borrowing euros, then if I create a swap agreement with a European company, they likely in being a European company can probably fix a more favorable rate being a domestic company, right? Whereas my company being foreign um, may not be able to get the same, um, the same uh, rates. And so this is where the two companies would come together, agree on a swap, and then subsequently they would honor uh, the, uh, the varying performance on a, uh, on a predetermined uh, time frame. So it might be uh, every six months or every, you know, they, they, they do a relative swap of the performance yeah. or every year or what have you. But again, tends to be more customized and much more complex, uh, probably beyond what the average investor would ever sort of need to concern themselves with. Futures and forwards are essentially one and the same. The only difference between futures and forwards are that futures are priced daily. So they're what's referred to as marked to market. So if you bought and sold the future contract, whatever the settlement value of the underlying commodity is, there is an exchange of either, you know, one side gets uh, the profit for the day, the other side takes the loss for the day. Forwards um, are not priced or not uh, marked to market on a daily basis. At the end of the day, what they're designed to do is essentially allow an entity or a business or even an individual to um, establish a fixed price on an underlying product. The, the best example that I can give, because most people understand that, is, is in the commodities world. So, um, you know, if I'm a farmer and I'm putting all of these inputs into uh, developing my crop, that costs me money. And at the end of the day, my profitability is dependent upon a lot of variables out of my control, mm -hmm. such as weather. So as a farmer, what I want to do is I want to figure out what, what minimum amount I need to receive to make money on my crop. And then subsequently, I can fix that sale price by using a futures contract. So the way that it would work is, let's say, um, so I would sell a grain contract. Yeah. So I would sell that grain contract at, you know, for a certain amount that guarantees me that on that specific date, I will see X amount per bushel for my grain. Now, if I sell to the market at a higher value because it was a good year, well, what I gain on my crop, I actually lose on my futures contract, but the net result is it evens out. Mm -hmm. But if I have a poor year and I lose on my crop, then I would subsequently gain on the futures contract and it would balance it out. So I could manage my business more effectively. 
Another interesting consideration is let's look at a company like Kellogg's, right? They need to identify their costs because they're running a multi-billion dollar corporation. They have to buy grain. Um, grain, again, uh, the price of grain is dependent upon a lot of variables that are out of, um, out of people's control. So I could go in and I could buy a futures contract as Kellogg and I could fix the cost of my grain over a certain period of time. Now, what that allows me to do is then establish a fixed cost for my product. So imagine if, as a consumer, every time we went to the grocery store, you went to buy a, a box of mini wheats, and today it's five bucks, but because it was a tough year for grain, uh, the next month it's seven bucks. So the utilization of these future contracts allows um, these businesses to ultimately identify a specific cost and then subsequently manage their business more effectively around that. Now, of course, uh, like any uh, securities market, there's also the speculators, right? So, um, you know, somebody who doesn't ever want to take possession of grain or so many sides of beef or so many pounds of pork um, can simply just um, uh, invest in what their expectations are for those markets. And at the end of the day, instead of settling for the underlying security and having you know so many thousands of uh, bushels of grain show up, they're basically settling for the dollar value or the settlement value of the contract, right? Um, so it's uh, you know it's a, it, it's again it's a very 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 important part of of the um, ebb and flow of of global economies between yeah. uh, between. Um, domestic businesses and even between foreign businesses with oil and exports and that sort of thing. So, so the futures really, at the end of the day, are a very, very uh, important part of the economy. Options, which is essentially what, what um, I specialize in, what we specialize in, a little different in that while they're still contracts, uh, rather than essentially having uh, you know, a settlement value uh, that is, um, is, is sort of... Um, fixed on a certain price and it's it's the price only that it's uh, that influences its value um, options are contracts that are ultimately influenced by a number of different variables which we'll get into in a couple of minutes um, and have an expiration date that ultimately could find the contract itself expiring worthless depending upon what the underlying security does so um, it's 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 a market where um, there is an opportunity unlike the futures market to fix a specific cost, identify a specific risk, and then ultimately take advantage of um, the appreciation of a particular security. Um, interestingly enough, there are options on futures. Uh, there are options on stocks. There are options on exchange-traded funds. So it's not like the options market sort of sits out as an individual sort of product on its own. It's a concept that can be applied across a number of other sort of derivative products. So in fact, options can be uh, used as derivatives of derivatives if uh, in fact there's a value in doing so. Currency options, for example, uh, for companies that want to fix their, their currency value and hedge against the potential um, you know, uh, volatility of an exchange rate. Uh, so and those markets, uh, the options market tends to be a market which is much more embraced by the retail investors. So there's yeah. a lot of retail futures traders. There's a lot of retail, um, you know, currency traders, that sort of thing. Uh, but at the same time, for the average individual, um, options tend to be the more um, 
uh, popular and more utilized of the derivatives market. Yeah, um, that's the one you hear you hear the most. You of. hear you hear the most, and so for um, for an average investor um, having a an investment account at one of your major banks or brokerages, um, the major banks or brokerages typically will allow the utilization of futures contracts within your within your uh, portfolio. You know, provided yeah. that you've got permissions to do so, you need to demonstrate that you have an understanding of the, that market. But um, and in fact, the options are uh, permissible, certain strategies within RSPs and TFSAs. So, you know, there's more of a broader application for the average investor in the options market versus in some of these other derivatives markets that we've been just discussing. Yeah. And you can see that really in the sort of more commercial applications where essentially if you're trying to fix, I don't know, if you're Pizza Hut and you're trying to fix the price of cheese, yeah. um, that makes sense from a business perspective. Uh, but I guess unless you're willing to speculate, a retail investor or average person's not going to be able to jump into that cheese exchange. There, yeah, the so cheese exchange, exactly. But but you're you're absolutely right. It's it's a it's a little uh, more challenging to access those markets um, for the retail investor. And again, the average investor, and we always go back to you need to educate yourself. Typically. Um, they're not educated to the point where it makes good sense to move into the futures market, where there's a lot of education and information available on the options market. Yeah. Um, you know that is accessible to them through their banks and brokerages and that sort of thing. That that sort of helps them along that path and makes it more of a viable market to to trade in and invest in. So I'm not sure if this is fair to say, but if I were to try to summarize sort of what you're saying, if I'm thinking from a broad perspective about derivatives. Really, what they help you do is is fix either inputs or outputs. They let people fix prices, uh, whether it's costs, or they help people fix the price of a stock, um, or they help people fix an, uh, a sales price for grain or or other products. Yeah, you know, I mean that 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 absolutely is part of it. Uh, the way that, and and I know we're going to sort of touch on this as we move forward, but um, the way we need to look at the. Um, the futures market, the, um, uh, the and the options market, for example, um, kind of like uh, available tools. And so there are specific um, um, characteristics of each tool that can be utilized to meet a number of different objectives. Yeah. And so if you're looking to fix a price, um, you can utilize a futures or an options contract to do it. If you're looking to hedge risk, you can utilize a futures, you know, based on their very, based on their the, the the contract specifications and and whether you're a buyer or seller, you're able to utilize those contracts to meet any number of different objectives. With that being said, how is the price of a derivative determined? So there's, you know, again, there's a number of different variables that factor in, uh, some a little bit more in depth than others. When you're looking at the uh, futures market, what it really comes down to is supply and demand, um, whereby, you know, as we know from a general investment uh, approach, uh, the more demand there is for a product, the higher the value of that product will go. Um, you know, the more supply there is, the lower. And so futures markets are are priced such that they are attempting to forecast future supply and demand. And, um, and you know, there's also um, within the futures uh, contract, uh, certain other elements such as the cost of storage. So for example, if I wanted to fix today's uh, price on oil, um, I could 
go out and I could buy all that oil and then I could warehouse, you know, a thousand barrels of oil. Well, that's going to cost me money to store it. So as an alternative, I could buy a futures contract at today's price. And that guarantees that I could take delivery of that oil for today's price. I don't have to store the material, right? But the storage costs of that material are still to a certain extent priced into the um, cost of the futures contract. Um, you'll, you'll, um, you'll hear oftentimes if you're watching CNBC uh, where the futures are trading above or below fair value. So when we talk about index futures, which would be futures on the S&P 500, mm -hmm. you have the value of all of the stocks within the S&P 500. And yesterday, they all closed at a certain price, right? So that would be the value of the S&P 500. When you hear that the futures market is trading above fair value or below fair value, what that's indicating is that the market is pricing in either a premium to holding those stocks as of that moment, or a discount. And again, that's that's demonstrating that sort of future expectation for the value of the underlying. Options, uh, a little bit more complex. Uh, of course, the underlying of, uh, value of the security, the ebb and flow of the price of the stock will influence the option contract, depending upon which contract, whether it's a call or a put, um, you know, the, the contract will be uh, impacted a little differently. The uh, price at which, which we call the strike price, the price at which the contract um, is, uh, has, let me put it another way, the price at which the um, buyer or seller of the contract has the right or obligation to transact the security. So that price relative to the value of the underlying influences the price of the contract. Um, Risk-free rate of interest. So there's a value of me being able to go out and control um, um, $100,000 worth of stock with a small amount of money, right? Yeah. So, there, so there is a, an, an interest rate um, component of the pricing calculation that is in there. Dividends are priced into the value of the option contract. Uh, I think the most important variable is um, uh, market volatility and the future expected value of the stock. So what we try to leverage um, and we'll get into uh, shortly here is, is the, um, the uh, um, volatility or the expected price movement of the, um, of the underlying stock as it's priced into the option contract. So if you think about option contracts like insurance policies, the more risk and uncertainty around yeah. the stock, the more expensive the option contract becomes. Yeah. Right. And so um, when you think about it in that context, right, um, there's all these different variables, time until expiration. Um, so time is money. Always. If you, have, if you think about it that way, the more time that you are allowing a stock to make a move. Right. The higher the probability that it has a chance of happening. And so that time value component is factored into the option contract. So it's it's the it's all of these different variables. And this is what makes options so fascinating to me. It's all of these different variables um, that are influencing the contract. And what our job is as a retail investor or as a portfolio manager is look at how can we exploit these variables or how can we take advantage of these variables to meet a specific objective, yeah. right? So but you, you got to understand the variables. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I guess if I was trying to think about this from my perspective, if I was trying to purchase or if I had a, had a, an option that said I can buy X stock at $100 and that stock right now is valued at $10. 
um, it would be probably a pretty, uh, you know, if that stock shifted between 10 and $12 historically and just sort of floated around there, maybe grew a little bit, that's probably a pretty cheap option to purchase or to create because the likelihood of that occurring or me being able to make money at buying that option and basically saying, I can purchase the stock at $100, which means that it has to go above $100 for me to make any money, that's not a big deal. If, on the other hand, that stock fluctuated between $10 and $150 every two days, so to speak, with random variables, then it's a very, it's, a, it's, it's almost random chance that I'm going to be able to make money if it goes to 150. So it's a much more expensive option because the, the, it's, it's a riskier bet for the other person and they want to be compensated for that. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, options at the end of the day are priced on probabilities. Yeah. Right, because there is an expiration date and there is a fixed price point in which the stock has to be either above or below for that option to have value on expiration, um, the contracts are priced accordingly. So how far away the strike price of the option is to the underlying, to your point, it's a $10 strike. I have the right, uh, sorry, $100 strike, but the stock's at 10. Yeah. Um, pretty high probability that that option will expire worthless. And so as a result, there'll be a low premium associated with that contract because there's a low probability that it's the stock's going to be above $100 within that time frame. Now, if the stock was at um, to your point 99 and it was a $100 um, you know uh, strike price, it would be a different consideration. There would be a reasonably high probability that the stock would be above that contract or above that strike price and 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 it would be priced accordingly. Yeah. So, um, it is our job to understand those probabilities and as I mentioned to put them to work in our favor as effectively as possible. To drive the point home, why do derivatives exist and why would someone want to create one? Yeah, so you know, um, I always kind of go back to why does the insurance industry exist? At the end of the day, um, you know, individuals or businesses want to be able to control um, variables within their lives or within their businesses. Um, they want to be able to manage risk effectively. And as a result, um, you know, uh, a market, whether it's insurance or whether it's derivatives, uh, ha um, has evolved in order to accommodate that, uh, that desire. Um, you know, the futures derivatives, in fact, um, essentially evolved quite organically. And I mean that, um, you know, it's, it's a little tongue in cheek, but um, they, they date back to ancient Greek. Uh, ancient Greek times where, um, you know, it was all about uh, fixing the availability and the cost of, uh, of uh, accessing an olive press uh, in, a, in a time when, you know, the farmer knew that it was likely going to be in high demand. So this is sort of the natural evolution of the, of the, of the industry in that um, there is an innate drive, as I said, for people to want to be able to manage variables and manage risk in what uh, quite often is a very uncertain market environment. And so um, they have become very, very important tools for um, for that purpose. So it, uh, ultimately, like a very sort of normal idea, something that someone can can easily encounter as a quote unquote derivative, even if it's not on a market or even dealing with finance, might be at some extremely in demand restaurants. You need to pay twenty dollars to reserve a seat. That being said, you're fixing the availability of a seat for a price to make sure that you can then 
sit there. Would that be an extremely rudimentary idea of a derivative? Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, I could I can take it one step further. Um, uh, people uh, historically have used options in the real estate market. In fact, uh, a friend of mine um, was building a golf course and essentially entered into an agreement with the farmer um, based on um, him paying a premium to secure the price of the property. Now, the farmer says, I don't know in six months time whether somebody's going to be interested in my property. So I will take your premium and I will secure the price while you go out and you uh, establish your financing, right? So the way it ultimately played out for, you know, the friend of mine is such that um, he was able to fix the cost of purchasing that property, put together a financing package or a shareholder package with that variable already factored in and then subsequently gain the financing. Now, once the financing was in place, back to the farmer, exercises his right to own the property, farmer keeps the premium associated with securing the value, and then subsequently sells the property for that fixed price. Mm. Now, if my friend couldn't get financing, right, the farmer has the opportunity to keep the premium. So it's a win-win. The businessman fixes the price of the property. The farmer fixes the price of the property and gets paid to do it and has a, a essentially a paycheck if the businessman fails to come through with, with the payment. You know, it's a bit of a rudimentary example, similar to your one about the restaurant. But at the end of the day, it's a very simple concept. I'm going to yeah. pay you this much to lock in the price today right, today's price for purchase six months from now. And if I fail, you keep the premium. You know, if I succeed, keep the premium and sell me the property. It's a win-win. Derivatives have a bit of a bad rap in the public eye. For example, depending on the context you believe, some people think that Warren Buffett described them as financial weapons of mass destruction, or that they took part in causing the 2008 financial crisis. Can you walk through some of the benefits and drawbacks of derivatives in general? Yeah, so you know, and I I, I always love to address that comment by Warren Buffett. Um, first of all, I'll, I'll address it in the context of of derivatives causing the two thousand and eight crisis. I mentioned earlier on that derivatives are um, you know encompass a wide variety of different types of securities. Um, some are standardized exchange traded and highly regulated. Uh, others are customized and trade what's referred to as over the counter and can get extremely complex. And so the challenge with the 2008 crisis is you had derivatives of derivatives of, of derivatives of derivatives, et cetera, et cetera, that ultimately uh, ended up out of control because nobody could understand them. Um, derivatives is, is um, it's kind of like saying, uh, you know, the stock market is a bad place when at the end of the day, it might be just one investment that you invested in within the stock market that caused the damage. So um, back to Warren Buffett's comments, you know, um, when he says that derivatives um, uh, could be a weapon of mass destruction, what he is not suggesting, and I actually do believe he did follow through with more to that comment, um, 
is that they can also be a very powerful tool for managing risk and establishing positions within the marketplace. And you know, to give you an example, uh, Berkshire Hathaway has probably generated five billion plus in derivatives, um, in profits from their derivative trades over the last 20 years. Um, example, back in the 90s with Coke, uh, Coca-Cola, which we all know Buffett loves this Coca-Cola. Um, Coke was trading at 39. Berkshire wanted to establish a position at 35, um, but uh, uh, sold. Five million, um, uh, you know, five million worth of share exposure uh, through puts uh, at the thirty-five dollar strike. Now, what that meant is that Berkshire Hathaway was prepared to own Coca-Cola shares up to the tune of five million shares at thirty-five. So, with the price trading at thirty-nine, Buffett said, "I want to own Coke at thirty-five, and I want to get paid to wait." Okay, so if the shares drop down to 35, Buffett would pay about $175 million for those shares. That was an amount that they were prepared to pay. They wanted the investment. To take on the obligation to buy the shares at 35, they got paid $7.5 million in premium. So the market paid Buffett $7.5 million to take on the obligation to buy Coke at a price he wanted to own it at. Now, what ultimately happened is Coca-Cola never dropped down to 35, okay? Shares continue to go up. The options that Buffett sold expired. They didn't in that incident buy the shares, but they kept the $7.5 million, which is about a 4.5% return on the capital that they were prepared to invest, okay? Just to highlight, on the other side of that deal or the market purchasing those options at 35. So Buffett was essentially putting it out there that I bet that the price of Coke will not drop below 35. And the market was saying, we think it can, so we will pay to, to, to say it will. And we'll pay you a premium or that sort of standard pay to play of deriv derivatives. And essentially what Buffett was doing was trying to coax it down, I guess, to 35 where he wanted to purchase it and then was able to, because he was the issuer of the options, generate that pay to pay revenue for himself. Right. So what I would say is that Buffett's mindset was not so much, or I can't speak for Buffett, obviously, but um, I would suspect that Buffett's mindset was, I don't care if it drops below 35, that's the price I'm prepared to own it at. Yeah. And... Because I want to own it at this price, fantastic. If it drops to 35, we'll buy the shares and we'll get paid the premium. That premium in itself actually lowers his cost basis because he pays 35 for the shares. He pays out 175 million for the shares, but subsequently collected 7.5 million yeah. for taking on the obligation. Now, to your point, there's two sides to the market. Thank goodness people differ in their opinions. So somebody who might have owned Coca-Cola at 39 would say, you know, I've made some good money off of this and I want to buy a put as protection. So their rationale is not so much that, um, you know, they think the stock is going to go down, but maybe they just want to hedge their position because they've done well. So Buffett comes in and says, okay, you want to buy protection 
I'm willing to sell you that protection and I'll take those shares off your hands at 35. So the investor who owns the shares has a hedge position and they're happy. Buffett, who wants to own those shares, you know, has, is getting paid to buy them at a price that he wants. He pulled a, an amazing move on uh, Burlington Northern, a railroad company as well, back in 2008. So Buffett, Berkshire owned 22% of the company, right? Um, ultimately wanted to strategically um, buy up as many shares as they possibly could so that they could assume complete ownership. Well, if you go into the stock market and you actually start buying shares, we know the supply and demand uh, game, right? Yeah. The, if you knew Buffett wanted to buy up the shares, what are you gonna do? You're gonna go in and you're gonna buy the shares because Buffett wants them, it must be a good investment. So rather than going into the stock market to buy the shares, Buffett went into the options market. The shares were trading around between 70 and $80. He sold put options at a number of different strike prices because he didn't care exactly where he owned the stock. All he wanted to do is fix as best as he could, how much is he gonna pay for those shares and do it as quietly as possible. Because the derivatives market, most people don't pay attention to. But you can in fact go back and there's records of, of uh, Berkshire Hathaway exercising their rights to own um, Burlington at the various uh, strike prices and subsequently assuming through derivatives complete ownership of the company. If you want to learn more about Croft Financial Group, please visit croftgroup.com. This episode is brought to you by Capintel, a fund analytics company helping investment professionals select the top performing funds for their clients. Industry experts nationwide trust Capintel to make better decisions faster. Find out why at capintel.ca.